Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fullest Podcast. I'm your host, Nikki Bostwick, and I'm so excited to have Dr. Zach Bush here with us again today. He's joined our podcast before, and we're so happy to have him on with us. If you don't know who Dr. Zach Bush is, he is a renowned multidisciplinary physician of internal medicine, endocrinology, hospice care, and internationally recognized educator on the microbiome as it relates to human health, soil health, food systems, and a regenerative future. Hi, Dr. Bush. (laughs) Good to be with you, Nikki. (laughs) So wonderful to have you here. Thank you for joining us all the way from Virginia, Hawaii. I don't really know. Are you in (laughs) Hawaii? Virginia's home. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, um, you know, we just kind of talked about focusing a little bit on last episode. I asked you about like your past and how you kind of found yourself in the space that you're in now. But I'm really curious, you know, as it pertains to just the journey of the self, um, I've been interviewing people for almost five years now. And every time I interview someone, the story um, usually starts around when it comes to like finding, you know, themselves more. It's either they felt maybe they were lied to or there were partial truths or they um, found, you know, something that they felt was a white space in the environment and they felt a calling to um, explore that. And I'm curious for you when it comes to your um, institutional education and medicine, like at what point did it feel like it didn't necessarily solve the problems that you um, thought originally that it was going to solve? Hmm. All right. Well, I should probably preface this whole conversation with the fact (laughs) that I just had a pretty intense weekend and I'm... I've been in the process of uh, saying goodbye to my adopted grandmother who's in transition right now the last few days. And so I'm in a particularly hard open space. And so uh, if I don't keep it together, it's because I love the world and I love all of you. So, um, but uh, in the context of watching somebody who you love deeply come to that threshold that we have popularized as death And you watch that person going back and forth across the veil in those last few minutes of life. um, You realize that we have the wrong matrix. We've we've defined the metrics for life incorrectly because we seem to define them as a birth moment and a death moment. And we believe that that little little few pages between those two bookends is why we're here. And in the last kind of death throes of my career. Uh, as an academic physician, you know, I'd been totaled 17 years in academia through all my training and research and professorship and all those things. And towards the end of that, I had successfully gotten a, a research drug developed and from kind of benchtop to first clinical trial, and which is like the most exciting thing you can do as a doctor. Like, mm-hmm. it sounds very nerdy, and it is, and it's not... <laughs> But for some reason, this like hits all of the buttons, both altruistically and egoically of like, oh my God, I'm at my, my moment. So I was having my moment and won this, you know, big grant to get the first clinical trial going on this, on this vitamin A compound that I'd been working on developing for, for a cancer that didn't have any treatment. So it was like a niche cancer that, you know, was falling through the cracks and. 
so I felt like I was really doing this great service to humanity. And I, you know, in hindsight, admittedly, was in a very heady space of like, oh my God, look what I've achieved and all this and stuff. And so the first patient is admitted to the clinical research center. And it was like eight o'clock at night. It was in the evening. Can't remember why it needed to be that late, but she was admitted. And I was just pumped, walked in, sat down with her at the bedside. And I give her this, you know, whole explanation of the, all of our data that we'd had up to that point and the safety of it and all this. And she's fine. She's like, okay, cool. And she's a little nervous because she's in a clinical trial for a new drug, which is kind of sketchy anyway, sounds yeah. like. And yeah. <laughs> I, this is the first time I've been witness to that process of a new drug hitting, you know, going through this clinical research thing. I'd been in the clinical research center many times, but it was usually like, you know, reinvestigating an old drug for this thing or whatever, but this was a brand new thing. What I didn't know was that the protocol for a new drug is that there's all this protective gear for the nurse. And so she walks in to deliver the first four capsules of this thing as if she's like in a hazmat situation. Wow. Like she looked, she's in this full gown. Me and the patient are just like jaw on the ground. Like what the hell? Like it yeah. looks like it's like that scene from this is going to probably date me and maybe none of you were born by the time this happened but in back to the future where he's got the walkman and and, and he's like dressed in the the radiation hazmat suit and wakes the guy up from sleep <laughs> that's what it felt like for me i was just like what is going on and the nurse comes in and she's holding these green capsules in her palm that now look radioactive because they're exactly. bright green color and everything else and she walks in and she hands those to the patient and over the next, you know, and then the patient's like, you, you dress like that. And now you want me to put this in my mouth? Like, she's like, so all of the work that I had done to make this patient really believe it was going to be okay was gone. And I spent the next 45 minutes convincing this woman to swallow these four capsules. And to do that, it turned out that I had to break the relationship that she had to her intuition. And that was the darkest moment of my life. And it was the most inhumane thing that I've ever done in my life. And I felt my soul break as she swallowed those capsules because I realized I had just applied 17 years of knowledge and th thousands and thousands of years of medical science to break the will of a human being and her connection to her intuition. And so that was the moment that my academic career started you know came, was coming to an end that was that was the door closing and I, I didn't know it yet at that moment it would take a few more months after that before I realized I, I had to leave academia and kind of turn my back on this huge education that I spent <laughs> decades <laughs> doing and $200,000 of school debt and and put my family through huge stress of you know my schedules and craziness and so that that in the end is something that I did as a physician and I feel like I've been working my way back out of that crisis of, of my humanity. And as I live life, I realize that all of us do that to each other all of the time. We wow. have been trained to break each other's humanity all of the time. And so that's when I didn't, not only did I start to close the door on medicine, I started to close the door on all of the metrics of what it means to be a successful person and started to just really ask the divine to show me a different path. And so that's been a process that continues to this day, today, uh, today. <laughs> wow. It's so incredible that you can identify a moment where you've really felt, I mean, you talk about this, you know, this natural intelligence, which is our intuition and that moment where you felt 
you knew that she, you know, you were fighting like her intuition basically. And I think that happens, like you said, all the time to people where they go and see their physician and they're constantly going and searching for what is going on with them. And they're told over and over again. And I hear this all the time interviewing people too. And they say every single time I was told that diet and lifestyle have nothing to do with this diet and lifestyle have nothing to do with what I'm experiencing. So why is it that we're trained to say that to people? For the same reason that a cosmetic industry that sells, you know, $45 billion of toxin in, to women every year gets away with saying, this will make you beautiful. Cover up your face. I'll make you beautiful. Um, we're taught to separate ourselves in a million ways from self. And the reasons for that have to do with a deep lesion in our psyche as humans. And this is, you know nearly 50 years of my life that gets me to the next couple sentences. And so, um, suffice it to say that the wisdom that's about to come out of me is young. And in another hundred years, I may have a much different opinion, but right now I believe that the, the root cause of why we treat each other as we do, why we treat ourselves as we do ultimately is because we believe that there is an inherent separateness from nature, which is to say God. And we believe that at some point there was a schism and maybe it was at the very beginning of time that we believe that. And we've created big myths about this or stories or histories, however you want to read it. But an Adam and Eve in the garden, they eat this thing and there's a sudden separation from nature and God. And the garden story is such an interesting one in that they eat from some tree and suddenly they're separated from God and they have to leave the garden. And so now that I'm spending all my life in regenerative organic gardening and farming and food systems and spend so much of my time with farmers and I'm a blessed human being because I mean, honestly, I just travel all over the place so people can show me their gardens. That's what <laughs> my life is. So in a given week, it's not unusual for me to be touring four or five big garden farm systems and and I get to walk on this dirt that people have fallen in love with and have become that. And so I think we are... Whether we know it or not, we are coming to a resolve of this story that we are separate from nature and separate from God. And it's not going to be surprising if it's the garden that finds us back in there and is, is the open path back into that space of, of resolving this deep schism belief that we are not enough and that we are separate and that we've been forsaken. And the good news is, is that healing really starts to happen spontaneously, not as not a, a long linear process is a spontaneous event of healing in each of us that happens when you bring yourself close to that God nature continuum and see yourself as a face, a pixel of that truth. That is the beauty around us. It makes so much sense. I, as someone who grew up religious, right? You did. I did. It's so yeah. interesting to have that insight. It makes so much sense, especially because you learn again, like you said, that it's conditional. The love is conditional. If you're a believer, if you're a follower in that aspect in terms of religion, but it happens all over the place with anything in our lives. And the reason for the schism is because you sinned. Yeah. yeah. And so not only are you not enough, you're the reason the schism happened. You're the reason that you're separate from. And so we carry around this deep guilt, shame, sense of inadequacy in us. And then we create a bunch of narratives from scriptures all the way to 
the consumer marketplace and cosmetics is like the other extreme. We create all of these narratives that we need to be fixed. We need to be patched up or we need to be glossed over. We need to be airbrushed or whatever it is. Like we are ugly. We need to be made beautiful by something else. Yeah. And that something else is often this externalization of, of God. And one of the blessings of being a molecular biologist or being exposed to molecular biology and, and science is you get to see the face of God in every microscope. You get to see such beauty in there. Such overwhelming beauty. You even shared that once about just being in hospice care and resuscitating people. And I'd love for you to share that experience here with us for people who haven't heard it. And um, I'm sure that kind of hits home a little bit right now, too. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So all the resuscitation efforts were before my hospice work and my hospice work happened because of the resuscitation yeah, efforts yeah. because in the ICUs, my first subspecialty was in internal medicine, which is kind of those are hospitalists are, are kind of an expression of internal medicine. You can also see outpatient, you know, primary care doctors in internal medicine, but for the most part we run the hospitals. So all your internists are running around running the ICUs, you know, the cardiac centers and stuff like that. We'll have the cardiologists on board, but the day-to-day care is typically done by internists. And so in that role, I, I spent, you know, way too much time in ICUs and in an ICU setting, you're, you see yourself against death. It's you against death of that person. And so you wake up in the morning and you're about to start a 40 hour shift and it's just like adrenaline's on. It's like, you're going right in that you're in the Humvee machine gun fires overhead. Like you are absolutely in that life and death situation that my brother experienced in Iraq. Like it is that, that level of intensity of like, we're going in, we don't know who's going to survive the end of the day, but we got to put it all on the line. And I'm not going to sleep until I am sure that patient is still alive. Gosh. And when you pitch yourself against a biologic process that happens to a hundred percent of people, you're going to fail. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's a horrible job in that way. But if you're willing to start to see your failures as somebody who's trying to prevent death as signs and symptoms of a, a misperspective instead of a failure, uh, it helps you find a lot of truth in the world and the patients always are your best teacher. And so my patients definitely trained me back into humanity over time. And I would say those initial resuscitation experiences began that process. And so resuscitations are horribly ineffective because you're against death or this transition point. So in the best of circumstances where your, you know, nurse happens to walk in when the person's having their cardiac arrest and they're, they're pulseless, she hits the code alarm. The team is there within, you know, 40 to 60 seconds You've got the crash cart there. You roll in. Somebody's got access to a vein in seconds. You're pumping epinephrine. You shock the chest. You do everything right. You're pumping it. You've got an ambu bag on them. They're on all, every go, thing goes right. You've got about a four to 6% chance of resuscitating that person. Wow. And so it's very unusual to see somebody go into complete cardiac arrest and then see them come back. But one night in the ICU, I saw three. And all three codes that night we brought back, which I had never seen. I don't know if anybody had ever seen. Like, it was so bizarre because it wasn't like we got a pulse back and then they stayed on. They came back, back, and they were awake and they were like, you know, off the intubation immediately and they were talking. 
Oh my God. And this was an 18 year old kid who had a genetic defect um, of the bones that wouldn't form correctly. Uh, oste- this uh, osteogenesis imperfecta is the name of the condition. And so they start fracturing as newborns. And so by the time he's 18 years old, he's had literally tens of thousands of fractures throughout all of his long bones and ribs and everything else. And so they don't grow. They've had so many fractures all there. And so he, he looks like a, a 18 month old or two year old at 18 year, years. And wow. the only thing that you can really tell that he's old or is his head is bigger. And so, um, an extraordinary being because he was pure joy, you know, no complaints in life. He was the mascot of joy for his whole high school. And so he had more visitors than anybody I ever saw in the hospital. His whole high school, 2000 kids came in over the couple of weeks that he was in, uh, ICU. And so that was one of the, the situations that I got to witness, um, a coming back, and then, you know, a couple other situations that night was an incredible African-American uh, Baptist, Southern Baptist preacher, huge congregation visiting all the time, Ext- huge extended family. Um, he was like Santa Claus, just like jolly, happy dude and just positive, you know, knew, wasn't afraid of death. And then the third one was, you know, a gen- gentleman dying in his late 40s, early 50s from end-stage complications from him, what we've attributed to HIV and things like this, and totally estranged from his family, church, everything, you know, a a gay lifestyle, estranged from everything, HIV for 20 years, couldn't have a more lonely soul, you know, and so I watched all three of them come back, and they all told me the same thing, which is, why did you bring me back? And then the next thing they said was, you know, a, a description of I just felt that I was completely accepted and it was such an unexpected line to hear once because you hear about near-death experiences and everybody goes in the light and they feel love but I felt accepted for the first time was such a startling result and to see three people of such radically different life experiences come back with the same experience it showed undoubtedly a hundred percent of us are walking around feeling unaccepted and if that's our condition, if that's our root cause of our belief of who we are and what we're here, why we're here, what what our problem is, then it brings us very close to the opportunity to resolve that and to realize that we are each accepted fully, completely, and we are 100% the face of nature, God, the expression of life itself, and we are a pixel in that beauty. And if we can loop all of that together we will start to resolve a lot of our socio-political economic instabilities that we've created in the belief of scarcity that comes from the belief we are separate. Yeah. In that moment, did you feel it was a message for you that all three of them had that same experience and shared it with you? Trying to tune back in there and see, you know, I don't think I did. And what's coming through right now as to why is, is a little bit embarrassing, but I don't think I knew myself or loved myself enough to believe that could be a message for me. Um, I don't know that I, I thought I was a beautiful enough person for God to talk to directly. Um, so I think I, I thought it was a message for humanity kind of thing or, and it took me years of processing that a decade. It was a decade before I even talked about that night. Um, so uh, something like that happens and you don't you don't have a reference point as to where to put that in your psyche. <laughs> you know? yeah. There wasn't a framework to say, oh, that makes sense. I'll put it right there. It was so disruptive. 
it challenged my religious background. It challenged my belief as a doctor. It, it was just so thoroughly disruptive, just that one little experience. Um, so I think that's that's what happens when we get close to truth, mm-hmm. which is why your son is such a moving <laughs> character. Uh, um, so that to, to name a child truth is a deep intuition you had that it was time for a transformative energy to be in, on the earth. And... Uh, I think those three patients ultimately spoke that into me so that I would speak it into the world louder. And that was their parting gift. They all passed away in the next week or so. Wow. Um, but they all came back to do that journey. And they all wanted to say that one thing. And they wanted to say it loud. So something wanted us to know Yeah. that all of us are walking around feeling unaccepted. And all of us, the second we let go of this egoic mind realize we are 100% accepted as we are. There is no sin barrier between us and the divine. We are accepted. We are of it. We are in it. We are it. It's beautiful. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. I want to take a moment to share with you about a practice that I've enjoyed incorporating into my personal monthly routine and one that I'm so excited to become your new favorite healing ritual because we just launched our own version for our community to experience as part of their well-being routine called Womb Protector, a blend of pelvic steaming herbs. Pelvic steaming is a long-forgotten practice that's been used for centuries across many cultures. We created our own kit and herbs for the most user-friendly, elevated steaming experience, allowing modern-day women the opportunity to reconnect to the ancestral wisdom of the womb. At the fullest, we believe that mental health is the foundation of wellness. Our mood affects every aspect of our lives, so self-care is an important tool that we have to stay well. So when we realize that even just steaming once every 28 days can improve emotional and mental conditions such as depression, anxiety, and fatigue, we knew it was important to bring this ancestral ritual to the forefront of holistic wellness. I personally used it postpartum with both my children to heal tender tissues that may have been stretched or torn during the birthing process. Steaming consecutively over the first week after giving birth can help speed up recovery and support the mother in reconnecting with her body. Our womb protector blend of pelvic steaming herbs is formulated specifically for gentle monthly support and also aids in conception, fertility, postpartum healing, and even preventing recurring UTIs and infections. Use code the fullest podcast at checkout for 15% off our product line and experience the beauty of tapping into your intuition and starting your own pelvic steaming journey. It's so beautiful. And earlier you had mentioned that, you know, it's not one thing like consumer products try and say, okay, take this pill or, you know, I'm thinking of our products, which I love so much, but we sell supplements, we have baths, we have all these things that we share with people. And it's part of the journey. It's not going to solve your problems. And that's obviously what marketers are saying now for everyone. But our personal journeys are the same way where it wasn't that one experience for you. It was so many different experiences that you had that brought you to where you are today. And same with me. I mean, I had Hashimoto's and you know, I was getting off birth control or I had so many things happen that brought me into what I'm doing today. And that kind of goes back to this idea of the journey into self where we, you know, start to explore like alternative methods to healthcare and food and farming and, um, you know, starting to live in alignment with our soul 
And I'm just curious if you can tell us biologically what's happening when that starts to happen, when that shift, like you said, it's a spontaneous shift. It's not just one thing or it's not. Yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah. It's an event. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah. What's the science behind it? What's happening energetically as well? And why is it still considered woo woo? Um, yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed academia. I loved teaching a lot. And that's why I, I never thought I would leave academia because I love teaching so much. It never dawned on me that as soon as you leave academia, you have way more time to teach. <laughs> um, but uh, I loved teaching and um, I had a reputation of being good at it. And so when I gave lectures, I usually took them from an angle that people weren't expecting and they enjoyed that. And they enjoyed kind of the, the journey into knowledge. And so I really fancied myself a super clever educator and blah, 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 and chief resident and all this stuff. And so I had all of the bells and whistles and, and accompaniments around me to reinforce my egoic belief that I had gotten this you know, whole learning education thing figured out. And um, then uh, I started to witness under the microscope uh, in my cancer research, a phenomenon called apoptosis, which is often described as program cell suicide, but it's, that has too much, that has too much negative connotation to it. Uh, what it really is, is cell surrender. And so what, what happens is the mitochondria inside the cell, which are these little bacteria that live inside our cells. So there's a lot of them. There's like 200 mitochondria per human cell. So you got this whole ecosystem of little bacteria living in every cell. And the vitamin A compounds that I was developing had a way of turning on a a certain mitochondrial pathway. So this is not the human cancer cell that's being affected. It's the bacteria inside the cancer cell that was the target. And so what I found is if I gave enough nutrient to that mitochondria, it would suddenly be able to get a burst of energy. And with that new found energy, it would suddenly realize that it was dwelling within a cancer cell. And, and so the, the amount of energy the mitochondria produces is what the cell runs on. And so the whole system, the lights go on for a second. It's like, oh my God, we have 20,000 unrepaired genetic injuries in the DNA in this cell. Like I, I'm wasting energy. I'm not part of my original organism. I lost my self identity. I need to get out of here and get a stem cell in here, a new tissue. We need to regenerate. And that would start. And so if you give enough information to the mitochondria, it will then inform the human cell of its role in the greater ecosystem. So we have a microbial intelligence within us that informs us as to where we sit within the landscape of life. And so that's what I watched under the microscope day in and day out in my lab. And when you watch a cell, when you watch the mitochondria turn this process on, so this little bacteria turns on the process of cell surrender. And... I try to think about how to, to describe this to people who've never seen through a microscope like this, but um, maybe it's like when you open when you open the cap on fizzy water, mm-hmm. and so you see that sudden, there's total stillness, no apparent gas in that bottle, and you suddenly crack that top, and it fills with this like exuberant explosion of bubbles, and you're like, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. Like, what's what's going on there? That's what happens to a cell that goes into surrender is it's the pla- the cytoplasm inside the cell is totally still looks like your your glass bottle of of perfect water stillness and then the mitochondria pops the cap and suddenly the whole thing goes into bubbles in slow motion it's not as fast as you see it rising and in, and in slow motion 
the whole thing starts to go into bubbles. And over the next, you know, 48 hours, the whole thing just dissolves into nothing and passively, you know, flows into the lymph system of your body and clears. And meanwhile, it has sent out a huge signal to call in stem cells to replace itself. Wow. And so when you watch that enough times, you start to realize that the cell certainly doesn't see that as a death. The cell sees that as, oh, I am no longer needed here. Somebody else needs to come in. I can't repair myself. I can't get young anymore. I don't, I've lost all the mechanisms of repair at this stage of my senescence. And it goes into this, this, this very gentle letting go. And my adopted grandmother's doing that right now. She's gently letting go. She had a near-death experience 27 years ago. She died of a massive heart attack for about 16 minutes. Wow. And in her near-death experience there, she traveled the cosmos, got to see her son who'd been killed in a car accident a few years before that. She had an incredible story, probably one of the coolest you know, death experiences I've ever heard. And so here she is 27 years later, knowing what's on the other side. And she's been preparing for it energetically and spiritually for the last you know year in particular and and really pushing the, the the pedal the last few months in preparation for this so she's been preparing herself for this relaunch and it's really a story of surrender rather than death uh, the harder we cling to life thinking it's all that there is this biologic you know moment is is what we're clinging to we tend to d- deform the journey in our desperate white knuckling of the thing we call life, we can't experience it because we've got a throttle grip on it. And so it can't breathe. And so I think that's how most people die in Western civilization is a a death grip on life. Mm -hmm. And for that, they squeeze out the essence of being alive and they die thinking they're lonely and everything else because they're not alive. Before they died, they were already dead. Yeah. And so I think that process is unfortunately starting in our 20s now but by the time you're 28 it's like oh my god i've got wrinkles on my forehead i'm i'm out of here like start botoxing me now like it's like so ridiculous how we have programmed in aging equals death equals uselessness (laughs) it's like it's frighteningly pressure you know pressure some on our young people right now definitely in your 20s it starts it does right yeah and you have to start questioning your own mortality. Why am I here? So at any rate, I think that this, the lesson we learned from a cell and its mitochondria, realizing it's time to for a greater release, for a greater regeneration, or the more times you watch an elder do, do the journey into rebirth really effectively, we realize that being alive has a lot to do with not fearing death as an endpoint. I'm not there yet. Like, I feel, I mean, and you know, I think I've always feared, I mean, I I don't know, I'm sure a lot of people fear death. That's like how we're, you know, we stay alive in some aspects, even though, like you just said, in that death grip, we've already been dead, you know, the whole time. But for me, specifically with my kids, I think once you have kids, it's like, and with my kids specifically with the MCAT, I'm just constantly, you know fearing so let's go ahead and just like <sighs> close all of our eyes collectively and think about that for a minute because it's a super important point mm-hmm. and um and i don't think it's just me but i have like a heightened anxiety oh no this around. is totally yeah. your personal problem nobody else has your problem <laughs> i'm separate <laughs> <laughs> nobody's afraid of death i don't know what you're talking about 
everybody's afraid of death because we've been programmed to do it. So let's mm-hmm. think about that for a minute because you, you pointed to the most obvious one, which we're afraid to die, not because we're afraid of dying, but we're, we're afraid for our kids. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's think about that. So let's just admit that we're afraid of death because we would lose the opportunity to serve others around us or we would leave others that we love behind. So if we go into life now saying, well, I'm afraid of death for an altruistic reason, which is I want to take care of my kids. Mm -hmm. Do you feel as a mother, and this, this is a tough question. (laughs) Do you feel as a mother or father listening to this, that your children came from you? Am I supposed to answer this? (laughs) I can't force you to answer a question on your own podcast, I guess, but it's an opportunity. Um, I mean, yes and no. You know, I know that, like, yeah, I don't believe that it was just me that created my children. I know that they're part of this world for a reason, and I was kind of like the vessel that brought them in. Perfectly said. So you, you were a conduit through which life entered. Mm-hmm. Did you invent life? No. Is life from you? No. Are you from life, though? Yes. Okay. I think you're right. That's how That feels good, right? Everybody's listening. Mm-hmm. Feel, I am from life. I am life. Did life come from me? Mm, no, that, that somehow doesn't fit. All right. So if your kids didn't, if you're not the source of life and your kids came through to be in an opportunity to be around you, to be in you, to listen to your heartbeat. That's why they picked your vessel. They wanted to hear your heartbeat. They wanted to hear your voice in the womb. They wanted to hear your voice singing to them at night when they were falling asleep. They wanted to hear your voice in the morning calling them out of bed to get breakfast. They wanted to see your smile at the end of a school day. They picked you because you are a beautiful being, a loving conduit for the face of God. But at no point is that kid confusing you as the source of life. And that gets difficult when they're a teenager because they start to be able to express that. And they start to say, Mom, who the hell do you think you are? Like, <laughs> Step off. I've got this thing. I'm me. You, you can't tell me who I am. You can't tell me what I am. No, I'm not going to follow your rules. That's ridiculous. You're not my God. But the ego in us is a defense mechanism. It's not a bad thing. The ego is not a a bad thing. It's simply a a defense mechanism against the fear that we aren't enough, that we aren't accepted as self. And so we use this altruistic journey as an egoic journey as a parent to justify our value. And when you let go of that and figure out, oh, I'm actually just me. I was a conduit for life to come through, but I'm just me and I'm here because I am supposed to be here. I am a child of God or source and therefore I am here. I'm not here because I'm a mother. I'm here because I'm a child. That changes the whole equation. And so that can start to help us reframe it. Am I really afraid to die because my children need me? No. I want to live because I think my children are beautiful and I want to see their faces grow old and I want to be the grandmother to their children. 
I want to live. I'm not afraid of death, but I want to live. And the energy between those two perspectives is 180 degrees apart. So beautiful. And so I welcome you to love life instead of fear death. Because when I watch you with your children, I see a woman loving life. I see a woman that is loving being alive and wants the best for her children. And the world has tried to convince you that your worth and your children's well-being is your responsibility. I've watched you be extremely brave and do courageous things in the face of a system that wanted to convince you that your children lacked the capacity to heal or lacked the power to be at one with their God. And there was a big message that they're, they have some inborn trait that keeps them from being ideal. So they're going to need stuff. Mm -hmm. That's the Garden of Eden story. Mm-hmm. You're not good enough, so you're going to have to pray, and you have to meditate, and you have to buy these beads, and you have to do something like this, and you're going to you better go do penance so that that God will accept you again because you've been rejected. To to tell us that a child has a genetic defect is to ignore the fa- face of God. Every child born with their situation is on purpose. It is not a mistake. And so your, your children are brilliant, bright lights. And I have many children in my clinic that are, are ridden with autism right now. And so this autism spectrum disorder phenomenon that we have going on right now is breaking the hearts of everybody. Um, I just flew out to see uh, one of these kids, 18-year-old kid. And it's uh, I've never seen such an intense experience for the, this family. They've got three kids, the oldest one severely affected spectrum disorder, nonverbal for the most part, second one mildly affected, and the third one without any autism. Wow. And when you see the pain and the journey and the, the extremity of effort that goes into a single day of existence in this home, it boggles your mind. And uh, in that journey... Watching all of that human suffering, watching all of that human stress and extremity, you are watching the face of God unfold. And uh, the last sentence that kid said uh, was at 14, and it wasn't verbal, but he had learned um, between, I think I think it was right around age 11 to 14, he had learned to use a letter board that a lot of autistic children are taught to utilize to communicate when they, they don't have verbal capacity. And he has such severe muscle spasm and kind of hyperkinetic activity in his body that he could, it would take him forever to type a sentence. It took him 45 minutes to type, I have been set on a path of great suffering, period. It took him 45 minutes to write that. At 11? At 14. At 14. This is the, the last sentence that he wrote. And his parents were rocked, of course, to read that. And they thought he was done because he would kind of get up between letters and words. And he got up and was running around. Then he came back and sat back down. And for the next 45 minutes, he wrote the second sentence that said, but my Lord and Savior will, will, but my Lord and Savior will rescue me. And so I don't understand the necessity for this level of suffering. I don't understand the, the, the path that we are on as humans that we need this big of a a lesson, but it's happening. 
and parents are being courageous enough to walk that path because their souls knew that path was coming. And those kids, angels among us, are brave enough to take that journey. Wow. So in the end, we do ourselves a great in-service by believing in disease as a random phenomenon. Your children have been gifted unique genomes that are going to give them superpowers yet unmeasured. There it was actually a prophecy that's been prophesied a couple of different ways in, in indigenous peoples and, and otherwise channels and all this about this decade that we're in right now. And the prophecy basically boils down to between 2017 and 2027, in this decade, the human species will go through a transformation in which we lose the genetics of fear and guilt. Wow. We don't know what the human genome looks like without fear and guilt. But it would not surprise me if a child that was born to a name of truth was given a new genetic code that we would mistake as, a mis as some sort of error because we haven't seen it before. And we then try to fit it into a box. Oh, they have this genetic condition. And yet when I met your children, I'd seen that genetic condition before. And I'm saying that doesn't look like that genetic condition. <laughs> this child is far too resilient, healthy, normal metabolism. I'm seeing far too much normal muscle here. I'm seeing far too much tolerance of good sleep and everything else. Neurologically, musculoskeletally, there is not the condition we're trying to put this kid into a box on. And I believe that your son was maybe the first kid that I saw that had a new genome that has been tried to be put in a box that is starting to fit this new prophecy of we are being given new genes and we are doing that through a hard fought effort of your generation and perhaps the generations before you of starting to break the patterns of ancestral passage mm -hmm. of the old genome. Wow. We need to change our belief system. We need to start to accept ourselves earlier. And it's my great joy to see my children in their 20s, the most liberated adults I could imagine. My daughter is a force to be reckoned with out there in New York. I've watched her like, <laughs> Instagram. It's amazing what she's doing. Forced to be reckoned with. She is in such a high state of personal expression of self at 22. At 22, most of us were in the most extreme version of absolutely trying to hide ourselves from the world. Yeah. yeah. And so to see that generation expressing so much truth in themselves, I know the genes have changed. Mm -hmm. Now that we understand epigenetics, we understand yeah. the plasticity of the genome that we have and how much it has changed over the, over the you know, millennia. We are seeing a massive end of an epoch. 50,000 years and the genetic code is suddenly shifting and we're in a metamorphic space right now that may last a generation, may last a couple, but this generation right now with this massive explosion of autism and everything else, we are seeing a new pattern that cannot be programmed with the old information. An autistic kid once starting to recover does not learn anything in the way in which a kid without autism learns. Well, and so I believe that. that this is like the blank slate moment. We are birthing children that cannot be programmed. That's so beautiful. And they're going to express themselves. You know, a moment ago when you were guiding me through that, like change in perspective and, it, you know, just like thinking about how I'm a vessel for my children to come through into this world. 
and you know, I'm a believer in medical freedom across the board, but I would love to hear your thoughts if you're open to sharing on abortion Mm -hmm. specifically, because I've, you know, I, it's such, it's not black and white and I'm just curious what your Hmm. experience is with it. Such an important question, especially right now, because it's heavily in the news as we see Mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade being challenged and everything else here. And, um, Sorry, I had to shut down the whole yeah. part of my brain that wanted to go a different direction mm-hmm. with that because <laughs> I just launched a nonprofit called Institute of Natural Law and Governance that's te- trying, you know, giving us an opportunity to re- look at natural law as a biologic template for how sociopolitical systems can go, we can go down that later. Yeah. But in we'll put a pin on that and I'll come back to the fact that Roe versus Wade, you know, bringing this back to our attention right now is, is there sovereignty of the woman? To ask that, you you have to believe that nothing is sovereign. Because if a mother is not sovereign, then what in nature is sovereign? Mm-hmm. And so I believe this is a very interesting test for us to see if we still believe we are so schismed from God that nothing is sovereign. And it, it's kind of the Einstein quote, which is either you have to believe that everything is a miracle or nothing is a miracle. You cannot believe that sometimes there's miracles. That's ludicrous. That's it's the biggest, you know, contradiction in, in thought that you could have. So if if you believe in a miracle, then you have to believe everything's miraculous. Yeah. So if you are miraculous, which I believe you are, then where is it? Who is the person that would go and tell you what, what your sovereignty is and isn't? Mm-hmm. So that's just general concepts. I believe that all life forms are sovereign mm-hmm. and are on their own path and have the right to their own, reconnection to their intuitive path, whether you be a feather, a stone in the river or a woman, yeah, you have sovereignty and your path is your path. What we find is that when you are given that intuition and empowered to it, you tend to act with an understanding of everybody else's sovereignty. And so do I believe that the fetus in that woman is sovereign? I absolutely do. And so how do we reconcile a sovereign journey with a sovereign journey where one of those sovereign journeys decides to end the other sovereign journey? Yeah, it's so complicated. So where, where, how do we untangle that? And I can give you some insights into what's happened recently over the last few years for me as I've started to utilize in my clinic a lot of different modalities that allow individuals to get into much deeper states of awareness and really tap into their intuitive self is that when this got to abortion in a very roundabout way, but what was happening is I was starting to see women in my clinic at extremely young ages with metastatic colon cancer. Historically, colon cancer was a disease of men. Like it was so typically kind of your 60 year old dude who's been eating Kentucky fried chicken or whatever forever. And it was a very predictable demographic. Suddenly I'm seeing like, you know, 32 year old women in my clinic that have been doing yoga and eating pretty healthy and doing the things and they got three kids and now they suddenly have metastatic colon cancer. And in this journey, um, there was a couple of them that got called to indigenous, uh, pathways of, of healing. And so one of them went to Mexico, one of them went down to Ecuador. I think it was the one that went to Mexico, also ended up in Peru. And so they had all these different indigenous experiences of coming into spiritual alignment with themselves. And 
similar to you have to hear the story multiple times from uh, at the point of death i had to hear this one twice before it really stuck but um the the first experience was five tumors in the abdomen and um this woman got to meet the five souls that she had aborted on this journey wow and they each had a color of the rainbow and aligned with kind of the colors of the chakra system of her body. And they introduced themselves to her and explained to her why they wanted to be in her energy field for just those few months, few weeks. And they went on to explain to her where they are right now in the, in the cosmos and what they're doing with the energy that they learned from her. A sovereign journey that chooses a pathway that will end in abortion knew that there would be an aborted event. This wasn't a surprise to the soul that chose the abdomen of a woman who in her sovereignty feels into her, her deep intuition and says, this is not my path. This is not my path. And we have to surrender judgment on how her knowingness happens. And the reason I have such deep conviction over this is because the first question of today, I gave you an example of what it feels like to break somebody else's will, mm -hmm. to disconnect them from their intuition. Mm -hmm. And so my warning to a court system, my warning to a society is, should you choose to separate a sovereign soul from their intuition, you risk the loss of our humanity. And so it's not just an abortion issue. It's a health freedom issue, but it's not just a health freedom issue. It's a human value issue. Do we value being alive or are we just afraid of dying? And so if we are just afraid of dying, then we see the abortion as a massive tragedy. But if we want to live, then we need to look at the arc of that woman's life and we need to understand that life didn't end for that fetus the moment that they gave up their biologic body. That soul is cruising flying on its next purpose that may be far more important on the scope of the cosmos than that three weeks was mm -hmm. and so if we are to resolve the crisis that we have around pregnancy and abortion and unwanted pregnancies we're at like 56 57 percent of births are unwanted or unplanned at least you know and so we have this most pregnancies are coming out of a situation that it, it feels jarring to the person yeah. that's about to carry this journey. I think we would do well to teach ourselves to trust the intuition of intimacy mm -hmm. instead of enter intimacy out of fear mm -hmm. that we'll be left behind, that we won't be loved, that nobody will find us, we won't find our person. So we end up going into intimate relationships with all kinds of people out of fear. And I did that. I did that in my life. And I had a couple of amazing long relationships out of it. But those relationships were ultimately built around fear. Yeah. And so I served in those relationships out of the fear of losing my partner or fear of not being enough for my partner or fear of, you know, maybe I won't be loved in that relationship. And so I was in a fear paradigm. And I think I'm slowly working my way out of that. I don't think I'm here, healed of fear yet, but I'm, I'm far more free than I've ever been. And my experience is that if we lean into intimacy of fellowship, for example, spiritual fellowship is changing. I'm really excited about seeing all of us as a society starting to lean back into our indigenous roots that we all have of remembering that we, we all, 
We all are connected to nature. We all are nature. We are an expression of God. And therefore, we don't need to go externally to find that voice of God. We can go internally and find that. Nobody was meditating when I was eight years old in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. You had to go over to Naropa Institute or something like that to go find somebody who was meditating. Now you go to flipping your executive suite at your, your big software company and half the people are meditating at noon. You know, it's like, that's new that we're going inside. It's new that there's 500 ayahuasca journeys per weekend in Los Angeles. Like <laughs> there is an excessive amount of interest in finding the inner voice right now. And it's this beautiful. is the decade in which we will lose the, the genetic traits of fear and guilt. And so right now we are coming to a realization that we, God is within we, and our intuition is there. Roe versus Wade was a Band-Aid. It was a symptom management of the issue of abortion that we used to either assuage or raise red flags over our collective consciousness about the concept of abortion. Mm-hmm. What we need to learn from the 40 years of Roe versus Wade is we wimped out. We let a piece of, leg- not legislation, we let a, a, an arbitrary decision by a court be our protection yeah. rather than come to terms with who we are and our relationship to the divine and our knowingness within and start to ask the deeper questions of how are we 50% of the time seeing ourselves with the wrong partner and then we're suddenly pregnant and, and then we're going doing the whole family thing. How are we that far off? And it's because we have so many layers of disconnection. So we got lazy when Roe versus Wade happened of like, oh, there's this collective consciousness unfolding. No, there was a collective narrative there, but at no point did it was anybody asked to do the heavy lifting inside. And so this is our opportunity as Roe versus Wade gets challenged to say, well, what's the deeper truth here? And I think the deeper truth is sovereignty. I think the deeper truth is we need young people to be empowered into their intuition and knowingness that they are complete in and of themselves. And they do not need to go complete themselves in a sexual partner or an, an intimate relationship of anything. They are complete. And if we start to empower our children to know that they have access to both the feminine and masculine divinity within themselves, and they can combine that to a state of high resonance of self, then their intuition will be more sharp and acute in its determinism than any generation before them. And they will manifest a world that we were trying to legislate or legally define when in fact that's going to have to be a spiritual expression, not a court decision. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to the Fullest Podcast. As you may or may not know, we've been sharing the benefits of Saffron with our community for a little while now, and I want to offer 15% off our entire product line to our podcast listeners with code THEFULLESTPODCAST at checkout online at thefullest.com. Growing up in a Persian family, I'd always felt the benefit of saffron in my life, but it wasn't until I stumbled on the research that it made me realize what powerful medicine it is. Saffron has been proven over and over again in clinical double-blind placebo trials to be an effective form of treatment for depression, anxiety, and ADHD. Saffron has been used by many cultures for thousands of years for these purposes, and now the research is here to finally back it up, proving that plant medicines and ancient healing practices can actually be an effective alternative to pharmaceuticals. 
At the fullest, we believe that incorporating this ancient wisdom into our modern lives is the most powerful and accessible path to healing. We also believe that everyone's journey is unique, so our product line offers a variety of formulas to help you curate saffron into your personal wellness routine. Warm Feelings is our saffron latte powder and comes in individual sachets and in large sustainable glass jars. Featuring 150 grams of high-grade saffron in a creamy bed of organic coconut and cardamom, it's the perfect coffee alternative and feel-good start to your day. If you prefer to pop a pill, Kinder Thoughts is our 30-day supply of saffron capsules, and it's a super simple way to support your body and mood with the power of saffron. Not to mention, it's really amazing for headaches if you feel one coming on. Our saffron soaks are the latest addition to our product lineup, which include Exheal, our saffron salt bath blend, and Inheal, our probiotic-rich saffron milk bath blend. Soak in them to support your digestion, inflammation, and support your skin microbiome. Honestly, at the moment, I'm using each of these products on a daily basis depending on my needs. And to help you begin your saffron journey, we're offering a discount of 15% off just for our podcast listeners with code THEFULLESTPODCAST at checkout. I hope you enjoy your new daily saffron ritual. Totally. You've mentioned this before, but, you know, I recently heard about the statistics where we spend about 93% of our lives or our day indoors. And, um, you were mentioning this one time on a podcast where, where it's easier to just like sit and watch Netflix and order takeout and get even our produce delivered. And at this point, you know, that is like what we're up against right? Where that's easier and it's harder to get out of that cycle. And that's keeping us from being more in tune because we're so far from nature where most people in cities aren't even putting their feet in the, if they're putting their feet in the earth, it's grass that's been grown with glyphosate. (laughs) I mean, that is the type of earthing if someone's doing it, that's happening. And it's so crazy to think, I mean, that's why we're in the situation that we're in. And so I'm curious what your thoughts are on how to get out of that cycle when, you know, it's like we're watching television that's indoctrinating us as well. And we're passing that out down onto our children. Fortunately, the answer is super simple in the end. And it's one word answer. It's silence. Like your pathway into complete new freedom is as simple as a few minutes of silence. And so the reason you're acting like you are right now is because you've been in an unrelenting, unrelenting state of reactiveness. You are subconsciously, if not consciously reacting to your inputs all day long, every day. And we've developed a society that's so good at reaching you all the time with inputs that you have no opportunity to know what it feels like to have only you, you don't even, you you and I and the rest of society, we don't know what it feels like to be me. And so the, the beauty of all of this, because if we had to go, you know, create something that was equally as big and opposite in energy as Instagram or something like that, we'd be screwed. Yeah. (laughs) But if it's as easily as, not doing Instagram for a moment 
then that's really super simple. That costs no money. It takes a split second to achieve and it has cosmic ramifications. And so the silence that we can create in our day can become a lifestyle. And I'm in a real joy state of my life this last few months in particular, but really the last couple of years building towards this experience. And I, and I still feel like I'm scratching the surface of potential here, but I've gotten really good at discernment of who I want around me. Mm. And I've gotten really good at understanding that the only way in which I can disempower their influence on me is to try to be in service to them. And I was a definitely an over-service human being. I was serving everybody until the day was long. And for that, I got a lot of accolades and people thought I was a nice guy, but my life was shambles. I was a, I was a husk of a human being. I was exhausted. And so my work back to being a far more potent agent of being me has been an effort towards reversing my belief that I am responsible for anything. I had transplanted my concept of love with duty. And I had transplanted my sense of sovereignty with the concept of responsibility. Mm. And so I was running around trying to be responsible and duty to prove my sovereignty and my love. And for all of that responsibility and duty, I was on a massive egoic journey of trying to be God. (laughs) And I was trying to be that parent from which all life comes from. And when you get to be a doctor, if you so choose to (laughs) challenge your soul with that journey, you will find that you have 1 million reinforcements that you're valuable because of your service. Mm -hmm. And the longer you do that, the, the less valued you feel and the less seen you feel. And so the more you do, the less you feel, the less you feel, the more you, you get lost. And after 20, 30 years of that, we've got doctors that are really right next to farmers as far as suicide rates right now. And so the farmers who are growing the food that we would eat and the doctors that would treat the diseases that would come from that food are at a state of hopelessness about life because they can't find the life within what they do. I, as a doctor, could not find the life in what I was doing. And so when I left academia, I went into hospice. I I started my own clinic, nutrition, blah, 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 but I wasn't making any money. So I had to have a part-time job to pay the bills. So I was a hospice doc. And the difference that happens between ICU doc fighting against death and hospice doc embracing this transition of end of life was night and day. And those patients, I was admitting 80 patients a week to my service. So you got that level of transition happening around you over a four year period. That's, that's a lot of souls transiting through your space Mm -hmm. and you learn a ton and there's way too many stories to tell. But in the end, it was that realization of if I become a steward of life by being witness to life, rather than trying to micromanage against death, I will have a much different result. And so I think it's a lesson for all of us. If I start to wake up in the morning with a belief that I'm going to be a steward of life, I will design a much different day than if I white knuckle the day to try to get to the end of the day with some semblance of self-worth and value that I will met out via the forms of responsibility and duty that I can do so that it looks like I'm, I'm needed. Uh, 
it, it's a really beautiful journey into surrender and I watch humanity doing it collectively right now. We're all doing it right now. No worries. No worries, folks. It's all good. <laughs> We're doing it right now. The future's already here. I really believe our senses are just keeping catching up. We haven't have we don't have the vision or the ears or the sensory neurologic system to sense the reality that already arrived. It's emerging now. Yeah. It is emerging. It has arrived and now it's emerging from the space between. It's really interesting that you had mentioned the 500 ayahuasca ceremonies and even um, the children that came through for your patients in that experience. I believe that experience because my mom actually, it's so funny. I didn't have um, a relationship with her for about 18 months. And that was like when we first started going to your clinic in Virginia and it came up on that machine. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about it for a bit, but that, the machine she's talking about is a camera that indirectly images the human energy field. And you can see the patterns of stress in your body based on the distribution of energetics coming off your fingertips. What's it called? Gas just gas volume or GDV camera is is kind of what it's been called before. But the, I think it just got rebranded into BioWell as the company. Oh, yeah. You know? So um, what's crazy is that we've been now we have a relationship and we've been working on it. And it's really beautiful to watch her really work on herself because I made the request that if we were to start working on our relationship, that she would commit to like looking deeper within herself and her childhood traumas because her father was executed when she was 12 in Iran. And it was a big part of like, I believe what our, um, the patterning that ended up happening with our situation. But the reason I bring it up is because she just mentioned to me this morning that she had gone to this breath work, um, workshop and she just started doing ayahuasca, which is so funny. And then she, and she's like now an expert on it. She loves it. So she's, you know, really working on herself. But then she went to a breath work workshop and she said, I felt like I coughed and a child came out of me, but she's had an abortion before. Yeah. And it was so crazy when you just brought that up because I kept, I asked her, I was like, what do you mean? She's like, I don't know how to explain it, but I felt like when I coughed, a child came out of me. It turns out that in Chinese medicine, the, we store deep traumatic grief in the base of our lungs. And so she literally did breathe out the entire experience of that abortion in that space. And she had stored that memory and that sensation of the loss of child in the lung. And that's body wide. And so it turns out that, you know, all this neurologic, you know, study that we've done on the brain to map every part of it. We've never found the hard drive. There's no long term memory storage in the brain, which is crazy. So how do you remember anything past the, the last few hours? Yeah. That short term memory, there's a little specific spot in the brain known as the hippocampus that, that processes all that short term memory. But then it sends it out into the ethers of the body. Our memory is held throughout the system and the memories that we hold on to most significantly are the ones that are tagged with an emotion, an intense emotion, and especially a negative emotion. And so we tend to remember the birth of our first child, but we don't so much remember the birth of our third child. Like it's weird how the brain is like, you'd think like every one of those is miraculous and yeah. the hardest you've ever worked as a mother. And why don't you, how is that? Because that space that would remember such an event is already full. Mm -hmm. 
your body is is stacking memories on top of each other and the and the first impression will always be the strongest and so she had a memory in her body that was stored correctly in the base of her lungs because it was tied to a negative emotion of grief mm-hmm. and she breathed that out and breath work is exactly like ayahuasca both of them get you into this huge dmt you know experience mm-hmm. and oxytocin release and uh even in western medicine baked in the wool all no god only biology oxytocin is called the god hormone because when it is released it connects us to the sense of oh we are from source the source is us blah 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 and you get that from oxytocin dmt gives you this kind of sensory neural experience outside of the 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 limitations of the human neurologic system but oxytocin has this way of oh my gosh i'm connected and oxytocin is expressed at the moment of childbirth and abortion and so in those moments of big disruption and effort to the womb we find ourselves in a god moment of connection and so now imagine the most intense oxytocin burst you've ever had in your life being superimposed with guilt and now you just told yourself the garden of eden story i have a irreconcilable sin that i can never solve for abortion happened and it has separated me from my god moment my oxytocin explosion and so your mother and my my relatives and anybody who's ever been close to a miscarriage or an abortion or loss of a child, we carry these beliefs that we, this has reinforced our, our, our deepest lesion, which is our belief of separation from God. Mm-hmm. And so there's an opportunity for us to look into these issues of parenting and mothering and childbirth and abortion and realize what we're really talking about is the extra human experience of being connected to to source or Mm -hmm. an energy field larger than ourselves. And so there's a resolve in here somewhere as we wrap this thing at some Mm -hmm. point here for your, your audience that's probably flipping exhausted by this time of listening through all these stories. I have like three more questions. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, to bring this to some closure, to open up your next questions, then (laughs) just close your eyes, let your shoulders fall away from your ears. Put your feet on the ground in front of you. Uncross your legs if they're crossed. Push your chest out a little bit. Open up your chest. Pull the shoulder blades back towards each other gently to open up the chest. Lift your chin just a little bit so you're looking over the horizon. Take a deep breath in and then exhale. It's okay. Everything is okay. The path has been our path for great purpose. We cannot yet see the finished piece of art of our lives or our humanity, but is in its perfect motion. To create silence enough to find yourself and to be able to see those around you for the beauty and miracles they are, you and I are going to have to give up judgment. We relegated this issue of abortion to judgment from a court that had been appointed by battling factions of Republicans and Democrats over a 40-year period. A polarized, hyper-polarized body of seven humans came up with a discernment that we then co-opted as truth or falsehood, depending on your perspective, and we let that dominate the, the terrain for 40 years. 
instead of letting it be a brick in the new foundation for our understanding of the sovereignty of life and our understanding for the crisis that a woman would come to in the decision for that abortion. And instead of having mercy on that situation, we would judge it. And I can tell you that in a given day, it is likely that you're going through three or four emotional versions of abortion in your day. You are aborting life at almost every turn. The moment you decide not to go watch the sunset and instead plug into your Instagram account or whatever you're going to watch all night long on, on your television and the feeds and whatever else you're tapping into, you're aborting life right there. You just aborted a moment of reconnection with God and the opportunity for creativity. And if you turn off the noise, go watch that sunset and then sit down alone, which is currently one of my favorite things to do with my instruments or my second favorite thing, sit down with a group of friends with those same instruments and play music, create together or create alone. It will bring you into your God moment. It'll bring you into the realization that not only are you not enough, you are a creative force. You are life itself. Avoid the abortion of life that you keep doing every day when you reach for the 700 calorie coffee in the morning, when you reach for the energy drink that is going to replace the opportunity for a nourishing meal, when you reach for a relationship out of fear of abandonment or fear of being alone, you've aborted the opportunity to be alive. And so before you go judging anybody else's abortions, we have to come to realization that we've all been trained to abort life at every turn, a thousand times a day. So let's take a deep collective breath together and exhale all of that guilt, all of that judgment, and let it flow out of us. Deep from deep in the grief of the lungs, blow it out. Blow it out, blow it out, blow it out, blow it out, blow it out. Keep blowing. Blow it out till it hurts. Keep blowing, 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 blowing. Now breathe in forgiveness. Breathe in forgiveness. The light, the warmth, the generosity of forgiveness. Breathe it in, 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 breathe it in. And push it all out because forgiveness is not the secret of life. Push it out, push it out, push it out, push it out. With the next breath, we will bring in the secret of being alive. Deep breath in, deep breath in, and you're bringing the warmth of gratitude. Feel it fill you up. Sun shining through your veins. Gratitude, 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 gratitude. You are beauty. You are the sunrise. Let it fill you. Gratitude, gratitude. You are alive right now, which is a freaking miracle. Mathematically impossible biologically impossible that 70 trillion human cells would cooperate with 1.4 quadrillion mitochondria that would be teeming in your body. Relax in that gratitude. And let our, let's set our sights for a new future in these next few questions together. As we continue this dialogue, we've got a fresh slate to think from. That was so beautiful. I'm like... (laughs)
I don't even know if I want to ask you my other questions at this point. You don't have any more questions yeah. at this point. <laughs> and that's the beauty of the silence. We realize that the questions that clog our brain up in a day are the results of our belief that we're disconnected from source and that we're not enough and that we have to white knuckle life to the point of death. It's true. I mean, even being a parent, even if I, you know, we don't have a TV in our house, we don't, but even just listening to my kids cry and I, like you said, I feel internally I am reactive inside. I, there's so much tension and stress and trying to figure out how to navigate all that, that initial moment of silence, even just before this one totally shifted my, just my energy. Yeah. So, and I think the reason you, you flew to Virginia to see a doctor wasn't actually for your kids. Yeah. I think it was to get a hug. Yeah. I love because actually the thing that was disordered was your heart and your mind and your stress for your children. And as soon as I saw your children, I was like, <laughs> I certainly have no role over there. <laughs> Truth is going to heal me before I ever heal anything of that Aww. boy. But I knew that we are on a journey as parents together to relieve ourselves of the belief that we are the source. And so I want to congratulate you on coming to a point of exhale and shifting from a fear of death to an excitement for life with your children and realizing that they are from source and that they are on their divine path and it is sovereign and it is far beyond your wildest imaginary capacity to provide for it or to plan it or to protect it. Mm -hmm. They are on a divine path. And if they are set on a path of joy, it will be for the divine. And if they have a moment of a path of great suffering, their Lord and Savior will save them in whichever shape or form that comes in for them. And so um, we get to all adopt this childlike experience of wonder. Mm -hmm. If we wake up tomorrow with a state of wonder, oh my gosh, that podcast like screwed with my brain. <laughs> I'm actually really feeling different right now. I'm really excited for today. It makes, you know, I was going to ask you about 5G and vaccines and like all these things when it comes to our kids and how to protect them. But what kept coming back to me was the serenity prayer and this idea of surrendering to things that I can't change and accepting the things that I can. And, and it's like that silence obviously is what we need to have that wisdom silence is where we're going to find the peace knowing that the answers are already out there mm -hmm. and the answers might be really catastrophic looking on the surface it might be premature death of everybody maybe we go extinct in the next 80 years which seems to be kind of our current path <laughs> and all of that but nobody goes to a hospice bed and says you're fucking up you're gonna die you motherfucker get up yeah you know, i'm, I'm Get the hell up. You're failing right now. Nobody says that to somebody on their deathbed. Mm -mm. Everybody says, I love you so much. And I am going to miss you so much because I have seen beauty through you. And I have experienced something of God through you. And I love you so much. And I am so sorry that our relationship was so distant and so confused. And we, we were warring with each other for more decades than we were being pieced together. And I'm sorry for that, 
But I also don't feel any guilt for that because we're sitting here at this moment of an end that is actually a rebirth. And I'm going to celebrate what we've learned together. And so tell me right now, as you approach that, that threshold of the other side, tell me what you see. Tell me of the beauty that I have forgotten about, that I have been totally disconnected from, but it is the beauty that I came through my mother's womb from. Tell me what it looks like so I will feel home again. Remind me that I am home right now, that I'm alive and at home right now, and I don't need to die to be accepted. I am accepted right now. Remind me of that great one, my elder. That's how close we are. That's how close we are to extinction. Yes, we are on our hospice moment as a species. And let's not sit around telling ourselves we're failing in this. And I've never felt that way on this whole glyphosate discovery and everything else that I've been doing for the last 10 years, heralding the end of times to say, this is our rebirth. This is our freaking moment. People Mm -hmm. were so close to the veil of the death of the old humanity that was so extractive, so destructive, so out of step with the nature and God that we were born into, born from. This is our rebirth moment. Freaking hallelujah for that. We are in it right now, and it's time for us to give the forgiveness to one another, stop judging one another in our actions, allow ourselves the silence to find our intuition again. So this, this moment is so pregnant with opportunity. This moment is so vital to the next steps of life within the cosmos. And I think the whole cosmos can feel it and knows it. And so I believe that if you are silent long enough, you will find out you are so not alone, that you are so surrounded by all of the energies that are in the universe. Maybe they're ancestors, maybe they're angels, maybe they're extraterrestrials. I don't really care your lexicon, Mm -hmm. but you will feel life around you and you will feel them kiss your feet because you chose this time to suffer. You chose this time, the tipping point of all things on this planet at the pinnacle of our awareness, we choose to destroy ourselves so that like the cell that chooses to destroy itself through surrender gives room for new life to happen. New life is going to thrive on this planet over the next 10 million years. It's going to be spectacular. But the thing that we've learned in regenerative farming and soil management is that we don't have to wait 10 million years. If we co-create with the nature within, we 1000x the process. It used to be thought and it was dogma, remains dogma in any agricultural school. If you go to an ag university, they're going to tell you it takes 100 years to build one centimeter of soil. And so we're currently losing two tons of topsoil per acre over 125 million acres in this in the United States every year. Wow. And so we've we've been watching this happen for decades now with chemical agriculture destroying the infrastructure of the soil. And so it just all washes away every year. Another truckloads and truckloads of soil off of every acre. We're losing the most precious commodity on earth at this accelerated rate. And, and the calculation of it, well, if it takes us a century to do one centimeter of soil, we're dead. Like, so why worry about it? Let's just try to extract as much corn and soybeans out of there and feed as much CAFO cows as we can. And pack as many chickens into a, a wire box as we can and just let's let's eat drink and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die that's what we have just done and then you go and do regenerative agriculture for just six months stop plowing stop spraying chemicals start to wake up every morning curious about what life you can co-create with rather than what you can kill 
And the speed at which Mother Nature shows up is insane. And if you start to understand how to play with her and you understand your opportunity to give her biochar and you understand the opportunity to give her biodiversity through, you know, 30 species cover cropping, you understand how to bring back biodiversity of the flora and fauna by bringing in multiple, you know, herd animals and the like, suddenly you're building at a rate of like four to five centimeters per decade. Wow. Insane amounts of soil are coming out of the ground. It doesn't take a hundred years to build a centimeter of soil. It can take a couple of seasons to build that much soil because life is abundant and it is everywhere and energy is infinite. And so in a weird way, as we started the podcast, (laughs) if we will walk back into the garden, we will find God and find out we never got kicked out of the garden. We just saw ourselves as separate and therefore we devalued ourselves. And so we walked out of the garden. It's Uh, that spontaneous healing that we were just talking about, but for the earth. For the earth and for our humanity. Mm-hmm. And the, the nature will show us back and, and welcome us back without judgment. She doesn't care if we screwed up. It's just like a mother watching their, their child fall down 150 times in the first day that they decide to walk. Mm-hmm. We are just now deciding to walk as a humanity. And we've been blustering around, falling over. It's been a ridiculous show, but it's cute because we're, we're just infants. And what a privilege it is to be here at this time together. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Glad to be with you, Nikki. Glad to be with all of you. Tipping point of all things, you showed up now. (laughs) Love you. Glad to be with you. I'm very curious about what we create tomorrow.